This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by the Tax Museum curator and professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeffrey L. Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello. What's going on in the Tax Museum today? Not a whole lot. Really? As usual. As usual. Okay. We did, we did get out, and actually, one thing we did get, the uh, the Tax Museum has a wellness center, and here at uh, UNC, we're celebrating a well-being day on Monday. We just have classes off for some undefined reason. Oh, it's called a well be a well being day, and because we have a wellness center here at the tax museum, it's uh, out, and and many of the museum uh, visitors are visiting our wellness center. <laughs> okay, and is is the wellness center in the tax museum something that shows you how happy you can be if you get a refund, or like what is no, it? Nothing it has nothing to do with taxes. It's uh, it's many many. It's probably two dozen different devices that just bring wellness. Very good. By the way, Jeff, uh, some of my students uh, have been listening to Tax Chats, probably because I assigned it to them. But in any case, um, they asked me if the tax museum was a real thing. And I said, yes, it is, in fact, a real thing. There is a tax museum. Not that Scott's ever actually done a tour of the tax museum. I but have. He does know it's a real thing. You have not. I have been to the tax museum. Yes, being, I have. Being phys- physically inside the tax museum is very different than having I have a photo of myself inside so you physically, tax museum. You physically, you physically existed in the museum. You've never really been. That may be true. It's kind of like the Hotel California, I'm guessing. Once you've been, you can never leave. All right. Well, we have been sidetracked far too long on the Tax Museum. What's going on today for Tax Chats? So today we have Alex Arnon on as a guest. Alex, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello. I am Alex Arnon. I am the uh, Director of Business Tax and Economic Analysis at the Penn Wharton Budget Model. Um, We're a a think tank analysis group that, uh, among other things, uh, estimates the revenue effects of federal tax proposals. And you are, now that I'm thinking about it, the second Penn Wharton budget model person that we've had. So that's that's good. I'm trying to think of like what organizations have been represented by two people. So Penn Wharton must be like important in the world of tax. So we want to talk today about the Wyden-Smith uh, tax proposal. Um, so I can just start off and, and you know, Penn Wharton, of course, did, a, did a, a, a modeling of this proposal. Can you just start off telling us exactly what that proposal is, what the biggest parts are? And then we'll go into uh, how, how you guys scored it. Sure. So there's basically there's three big parts and then a bit of a mishmash of other things. Uh, the three big pieces are one, an expansion of the child tax credit that is mostly about uh, expanding the refundability of the credit. So this is a $2,000 credit per child, uh, 16 or under, um, that is partially refundable. And so uh, this legislation would substantially increase the amount that can be claimed uh, as a refundable tax credit. Uh, So that's piece one. Piece number two is basically Congress cleaning up messes that it created in the past on uh, business tax, uh, specifically provisions related to treatment of investment. Um, So there's a few different pieces here. One is the uh, extension of 
rather I should say the reversal of a change to how research and experimental costs are treated uh, previously Previous to the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you could deduct those costs immediately if you wanted to. Uh, The TCJA, in order to pay for some of its other tax cuts, uh, made a change starting in 2022. You would have to capitalize this and amortize over five years, these uh, research and experimental or R&E expenses. Um, So Congress will extend that uh, or bring back the full deductibility. The second investment piece is extending 100% bonus depreciation. This is another uh, change that is sort of undoing something that was in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, TCJ created this 100% bonus depreciation. You can fully deduct uh, investment in a wide range of assets, Um, but that starts to phase down from 100% bonus to 80% bonus in 2023. Uh, And Congress wants to undo that phase down which is currently scheduled to continue 20 percentage points uh, each year for the next few years. Uh, And then the third, I I guess in addition to that, there is a small increase in the limitations for Section 179 expensing. Um, So this is basically allowing small businesses mainly to immediately deduct uh, slightly more of their investment separate from bonus depreciation. Uh, There's also a reversal of a change to interest deductibility. Uh, So business interest deductions are limited, again, under TCJ. And starting in 2022, uh, the limitation became tighter, essentially. Uh, And so Congress will reverse that in this bill, bring back a more generous limitation that had been in place before 22. the, the third big piece is how they're going to pay for all these changes, because you know we're expanding the child tax credit, we're giving more generous treatment of investment that costs some revenue. Um, and the way Congress is going to pay for this is essentially ending early and uh, severely cracking down on the employee retention tax credit, or the ERC. Uh, the ERC is a COVID-era relief measure that was sort of a, basically if you were severely affected by COVID, you could claim a credit for a portion of wages that you continued paying during the pandemic. So like if you were ordered to shut down due to local government orders, uh, but you continued paying wages, you could get this credit. Um, So this initially a pandemic relief measure, uh, it was expanded a few times over the last couple of years. They pulled it back a little bit uh, in 2021, but uh, over the last year or two, we've seen one of the wilder developments, I think, in tax policy, something I, I, you know that I, I cannot recall anything that is like this. Um, essentially, a fraud industry or something approaching a fraud industry emerged uh, to take advantage of very generous terms on this credit. So the way Congress is going to pay for all these tax benefits, they're going to cut that off, crack down on that, and uh, that will you know, save enough money to pay for all these. So, so a comment and a question. So the comment, the ERC really is like this amazing thing. I, I just will note, Scott and I have actually tried to get a handful of ERC people on tax chats. And we want to, we actually like have tried to figure out what person is involved on the shadier, fraudier side of this to try to get them on and not just somebody who's going to come on and is like a straight shooter. And we've had a couple of people say like, oh yeah, I'll be on. And then they always back they out. They backed so out want, at the end, yes. We wanted to do ERC people to get one of these ERC fraudsters on here, but so far they have not uh, not been willing to do that. 
Well, sorry to say, if any uh, if any of them asked me whether as an ERC promoter you should come on tax chats, my advice would be no, do not come on tax chats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the IRS. Well, I mean, we're friendly, watching. right? We're we're, uh, we're 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 good sports. Uh, and then the the question about this, I mean, so several of the things you said is like, you know, it's it's it, TCGA passed in 2017, and this thing phased out in 25, phased out in 22, will phase out in 24. Uh, you know, what Penn Wharton does is score things. One of the things they do. Can you explain the relationship between scoring and like the budget process and why all those things phased out? So going back to 2017, when they were trying to pass the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, you know, where Congress has been out for a while now, uh, if trying to pass major legislation, mainly through the Senate, is very challenging because of the filibuster. Uh, you know, it is hard to get 60 votes for anything. For budget legislation, there is a workaround for the filibuster, uh, you know, which is budget reconciliation. Um, I will not go into the very fun details of that, but essentially it means that you can, you can you know, uh, get by with 50 votes in the Senate, uh, but you have to meet certain conditions. Basically, your, your, your legislation cannot increase deficits over the long term. Uh, and so in order to... Which is 10 years, right? 10 years, yeah, after 10 years. And, and I think that's important because there's so many things in every legislative provision. Oh, in 10 years, X. It's, it's all 10 years now. It's always 10 years. So, I mean, is the simple way to say that it's got to be revenue neutral over 10 years? That's right. It's, you know, there, there is essentially they can specify we're allowed to do some amount of deficit increase within the 10 years. Uh, but after the 10 year period is over, it, you know, essentially going into year 11, it has to be deficit which which is always ends up being a big farce, right? For the reason we're seeing is that the intention is always we're going to pass it. It's going to be revenue neutral by 10 years. But in you know five or six or seven years, we're going to find something that the other side needs and we're going to give it to them in exchange for the extension of the thing. So it's going to end up costing. I mean, it's just to me is. Well, I mean, this that's why this this uh, this this the widen thing we're talking about today is like the perfect example, because. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act had all these benefits to businesses, and now um, and they were phasing out. So the depreciation deduction is a really interesting one. Instead of just spreading the cost over many years, you get to take all the cost in one year. Oh, that's amazing. That's good for companies. It costs the government something, but it's scheduled to phase out. And then it's like, oh, as soon as it phases out, actually, maybe we have a, better have a bill to stop that thing from phasing out. And it, it's just... Kind of amazing, and then you, and then you use the child tax as the bar, bargaining chip because that's what that's how you can get a few Democrats on to clear the House and the Senate. It's actually even a little worse than that because something I, I should have mentioned at the top here is that all of these provisions uh, they are only would, under the Wyden Smith Agreement these provisions would all be effective through 2025, but after 2025, so at the same time, all of the or many other provisions of TCJA are set to expire. Uh, you know, all of these temporary extensions would also expire. So basically, this is sort of extending parts of TCJA so that now all the business stuff uh, you know, disappears with, or you know, a lot of the business stuff will expire with the individual tax changes. But what that means for something like the uh, R&E deduction and bonus depreciation, if you are temporarily giving people these benefits, um, this is essentially just a time shift of deductions. You know, it's a little more complicated than that, but in the main, you're just shifting deductions forward. You're, if you take up bonus depreciation, um, you deduct more now and less later. So you're paying less tax now, but paying more tax later. Um, so over 10 years, these temporary extensions, they're essentially revenue neutral. Uh, you know, you end up getting the, the taxes back. 
Oh, with, with, with the time value money, though. Time value. Money, Actually, money's got value these days. I think that's an interesting, the time value money. I want to ask Jeff this question. I, I don't, I guess I don't know for sure the answer, but certainly from a company's point of view, time value of money is very crucial, right? Because oh, that's most, that's a lot of tax money, all deferral strategies, so much tax time value money. money. Time, yeah, yeah. Companies really care about this. And if Especially I can, Especially when you got interest rates as high as they are right now. Yeah. Right? If I can pay later, that's way better than paying now. So paying later is way better. Um, does the, how much does the government care about time value of money? Why are you asking me? This is an Alex I, question. I thought you might know, or maybe Alex knows. Does it? Does the government I know care? Something, but Alex is what Alex does for a living. <laughs> so I can I can say with a, you know I would say pretty pretty confidently, Congress does not care a lot about this. Uh, Congress thinks in dollars, you know. And, and that's because of the scoring rules, right? So Congress just cares about the scoring rules, and the scoring rules don't fully appreciate this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's more than just that Congress, you know, has set these rules that like this is also their psychology, uh, you know, they, despite many of them having business uh, business backgrounds, um, you know, I think by and large when it comes to legislating, they think in, in dollar terms, you know, that's they think in numbers that people will say out loud. Maybe maybe Congress is filled up with accountants because accountants are notorious for ignoring time value of money and accounting. I was going to say, actually, the, so the tax, you know, the tax directors care about this. They want to save money, but the um, people who care about earnings per share don't as much, right? Because earnings, financial accounting rules don't take into account, in this particular case, the time value of money. Exactly. I mean, just, just in my last class on uh, Tuesday, we worked through an example where a company can take bonus depreciation and I can show the students how much tax or like savings they have from a time value of money point of view. But the accounting is like the same every year and it doesn't actually save them anything from a net income point of view. <laughs> Earnings doesn't change. Okay, so we've been, uh, we got distracted. We want to talk about scoring. So let's just go kind of piece by piece and maybe we won't get through all of them, but talk about how, you know, how you think about scoring these different things. It just fascinates me because it's just like a very open-ended exercise where you have a piece of legislation and Alex and his buddies are supposed to tell us how much it costs. So let's start with the child tax credit. So how do you think about how much that's going to cost? Like what data do you have available to you? What parameters are you assuming? That tell us about scoring the child tax credit expansion. Sure, so so first off, let me say, there are a lot of buddies involved here. This is not just me uh, coming up with these numbers. You know, we, we have a, an excellent team here at PWBM. Um, but yeah, so, so for the child tax credit, you know, this is um, conceptually actually pretty straightforward, you know, for, the vast majority of individual income tax changes, the way we estimate the revenue effects is through our tax uh, micro simulation model. So this is a taxpayer level model of the U.S. income tax code. So, you know, we get from the IRS, they uh, very kindly provide us with an anonymized sample of tax returns, uh, you know, that should be representative of the full taxpaying population. Uh, and then essentially what we do is we take that data and you know, we build something that is sort of a, a souped up version of TurboTax, or at least a, a something like TurboTax is a major component of it, where it just runs the tax code on households. Uh, now, obviously, you know, we get historical data for, you know, returns in some historical year. We are trying to predict their taxes in a future year. There are a lot of uh, forecasts and assumptions underlying that, how incomes will grow over time, uh, you know, family, how family sizes will grow over time. All that stuff comes into play. Uh, and, you know, we have other models to to project those things. Um, but essentially for the individual tax, you know, the way we do this is we, we have a, a simulation of the tax code on a population of taxpayers. 
and we just go in and change the tax rules. That's the first order effect. You know, we have new rules for the child tax credit. Um, so we just put that into the tax law. And, uh, and then on top of that, you know, depending on the provision, there might be some responses that are make it a little more complicated than just like TurboTax. Uh, you know, tax, taxpayers might do things like reallocate income uh, in order to, to you know, take advantage of some tax benefit for one type of income versus another. Um, but essentially, essentially, that's it. You know, we, we uh, model the child tax credit at the taxpayer level, we change the rules, we see how much difference it makes, and, uh, and that's our number. So, so I hadn't actually thought about all of these things are relatively straightforward to model absent the behavioral component because they're not they're not like fundamental changes. You have all the data necessary. So for the child tax credit, you're just saying like, you know, when we maybe we should explain this before, the refundable credit means that, um, you know, something's not refundable. If you don't have an income tax liability, you just don't get any of the credit. A child tax credit was partially refundable. So this is basically just expanding the pool of people that go to the credit that don't have taxable income. So it's to say more low-income people that don't pay any taxes will get the credit. So like as long as you know, you know, if below 10,000 you didn't get the credit, now it's from 10,000 to 5,000 you do. You just have to know how many of those people there are. Multiply by the number of kids they got. Cost per kid, you got your number. Well, and when you say get the credit, to be clear, what that means is the government will send you a check even if you didn't send any check to the government. Even if you don't have a tax. So you just have to know, like, the limit, the, the thresholds. You're going to have to assume something about income changing next year and that distribution of changes, but that's not, you know, something and the behavioral change i guess is big so how do you think about the behavioral change because there is a is a now a literature on behavioral change i think the biggest thing they're concerned and this has become a big political point is like will people work less because they get the child tax credit? so you're out there you're really poor you're struggling to get along and you just have to have a job to feed your kids get this child tax credit maybe you don't need that job you quit and you just like live off the credit what does the literature say about that what does penn wharton budget model do with that literature in their in their model so, so yeah, so I definitely, uh, you know, there is evidence that people do respond to some extent to this, you know, people are working a little less. I think that was particularly true of, you know, a previous expansion of the child tax credit we had in the American Rescue Plan Act, where essentially, you know, under current law, uh, it, under normal circumstances, there is a phasing for refundability, meaning you have to have some earnings in order to claim any of the refundable tax credit. Um, so, you know, it, it has incentives going both ways, because if you want to get this benefit, uh, you actually do need to have some earnings. But, you know, there, there's an income effect there. You're going to have that earnings. They're going to give you a child tax credit on top of that. That might somewhat reduce your, your incentive to, to work and earn more. But for the most part, uh, you know, I think the literature on this, you know, there are effects. Uh, they are small. They are probably not worth thinking about um, when you're thinking about policy design. Again, assuming we're in the range of marginal changes to the current framework, something like the kind of you know, huge wholesale changes they made in uh, the American Rescue Plan, you know, we're talking uh, essentially a different program at that point where they remove the income phase in, uh, you know, there's uh, different rules for how quickly you can get the payouts. Um, you know, it's essentially, it's a much more generous program uh, that had much weaker work incentives. But we are back now to the regime where there is this phase in, you have to work in order to get the credit. One change in this bill, one uh, new aspect or, or modification to the credit rules that they are proposing here is, so you know you have to have earnings in order to claim refundable credits. Um, 
Normally, that is based on how much did you earn this year in the year you're, you're filing and claiming the credit. Uh, under this proposal, they would allow you to essentially use your previous year's income if it was higher than your current year income. So, as, so you know, if your income falls from one year to the next, that might reduce the amount of refundability you're eligible for. Um, what they're saying here is that's fine. Just use your previous year's income as though you had earned that amount this year. We'll give you the same credit you would have gotten uh, with last year's earnings. Yeah. So, I mean, and there's some policy reasons to do that, but from a modeling standpoint, as long as the IRS gave you two years, you can just say, well, like we can pretty easily show what would have happened. Choose had this the higher of the two. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, choose the yeah. It's like a line of code you got to add to your. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. So, it, well, so this, this, you know, it does get a little more, this is an example of where it does get a little more complicated. You know, we need to know how likely is a taxpayer to be in a situation where, uh, you know, their earnings from last year are you know, meaningfully higher than their earnings from but this that, year. But, but why is that? Compl- I mean, you just know that if you have the two tax returns, why is that complicated? Well, because we, we do not actually have uh, the linked tax returns over time. So we get a snapshot. Ah, we get a okay. So you get like every year, some kind of just, you choose the, you said a representative sample, you're going to choose the parameters along which it's representative. It gives you some kind of distributions, but you can't link one tax return to another. So all you, all you'll have is some kind of just something about average wage growth and the distributions of that. Okay. So that does get a little bit more complicated. So you have to make some assumption you, about how many for you yeah. assumes uh, you have, you'll have to assume something, but when like treasury or JCT or something does this, they don't have to assume anything. They can do it just perfectly without any assumptions. Yeah, no. hmm. to, to the extent that they have the, the linked tax returns, which, you know, it's not a, a simple thing, even for, for them, it takes some time for them to actually link these things. Uh, but, but, no, but you know, we are relying on other data sources, uh, still, you know, household level data sources, survey data, to sort of model the likelihood uh, that someone is going to end up in a situation where this provision will affect how they claim. Yeah. Okay, so that's child tax credit. What uh, what should we talk about next? And maybe we're not going to get to everything. But what uh, what else? What else did you score? Uh, so yeah, so the big the you know the other big chunk of, of uh, uh, tax benefits being provided here are these business extenders, uh, often referred to as um, you know the I think the one that has gotten the most attention because uh, it is the one that has upset people most, as I understand it, is the deduction for uh, research and experimental costs. Um, you know, we, and, fell, and, we fell off a cliff. We fell off a cliff. And it, it's, you know, I think uh, so, you know, from a business's perspective, you're used to, let's say you do $100 of research and experimental uh, expense, you know, investment each year, you're used to deducting that $100 immediately. Uh, all of a sudden now in 2022, it, it's not just that you now have to, to you know, spread it over five years and you're, it's not like you're just deducting 20 bucks in year one. Uh, because of the half year convention, you're actually only going to deduct ten dollars in that first year so you're for a lot of companies you're going for the situation where you're deducting a hundred dollars uh you don't change your behavior but now you can only deduct ten you know big jump in your taxable income uh, people were were surprised and unhappy about it and you know i don't know if we want to talk about the, the legislative and political history here but um, you know this one is is sort of the most extreme case of congress passing something that goes into effect in the future and simultaneously signaling this will never go into effect. It's a tr- you know, completely legislative trick, assuming it's never going to happen. And like, there's no official statement of this, but you know, I, it was very, it was widely understood at the time they passed uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that 
they would take action before this change actually went into effect to reverse it. But again, to be clear, and why did they do that? Like what forced them to put that provision in, signal, et cetera? Right. So, so the so this provision was put in in order to raise some money to uh, offset the, the all other about the scoring system. rules, right? Yeah. We literally yes. had this just because the scoring rules. Is... Well, and then what's crazy is you know this is never supposed to take effect, and then suddenly it did take effect before they could get Congress their act is too together. Dysfunctional and, to fix it, right? Yeah. The other crazy thing about this particular one is the way it interacts with accounting, because accounting still requires you to expense your research and development, but now the tax does not and forces you to depreciate it. So it created a new book tax difference, which was going kind of in the opposite direction of what would typically happen with something like depreciation. So it was kind of a fun thing to think about from a point of view of how does it show up in the financial statements of the companies versus what's happening on the tax side. So kind of a cool, cool little. Yeah. So, it's, so it's the R&D, uh, R&D expensing, I'm guessing it's relatively straightforward to model. You just know, like t- tell us about how you, uh, how, how much we yeah. think it costs and how we know that. <laughs> So, so the so again, you know, for these business provisions, um, the modeling is uh, conceptually the same, but in practice, it's a little more complicated um, because, unlike with the individual tax data, uh, IRS does not give us a nice, convenient, representative sample of corporate tax returns that we can use to model. Uh, so here, this is, you know, we are getting much, much further away from, uh, you know, TurboTax Plus. Um, now we are into sort of we first have to model uh, the corporate tax returns themselves and then use that to model corporate taxes. Um, so, you know, what we are using to estimate something like the R&E or bonus uh, provisions here, it is, it is a, again, a tax micro simulation model, um, but it is based on, you know, what we call a synthetic micro data sample as opposed to an actual sample of tax returns. Uh, so so why does it have to get so complicated? Because like, if I'm just like, okay, so this is like naive Scott, who's never been a scoring isn't person. Redu- isn't that redundant? Yeah. Um, to say naive Scott. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. All right. So, <laughs> so, um, so it, why can't I just say um, this year there was X amount of dollars recorded in R&E expense. And we now know that that's about one fifth as big as it could have been. And I realize that some years it's going to be a 10th and some years it's going to be a fifth, but maybe you do a little bit more than a fifth and then you just multiply by five and you say, there we go. That's the, that's the change. Does that not work? That will, in this case, that will get you pretty close. Okay. For, for the R&E deduction and, uh, you know, bonus depreciation changes here as well. Again, because these are mostly just timing shifts, you know, if you have some some basic numbers for yeah, exactly what is the starting amount uh, of, of investment, um, you know, you can sort of just back at the envelope figure out how the timing is going to shift. It, it is a little more complicated than that. You know, there are all kinds of income. You know, you've got things going into NOLs, and um, you know, you, you mentioned the book tax differences that does have. In and we're case, not even talking about behavioral changes. Like you might spend right. less on R&D because you've been doing it for five years instead of getting it all the deduction in one year or something. But yeah. So, but yeah. So, so in these particular cases, that actually would work pretty well. Uh, but, you know, in a lot of other things, a lot of other tax policies, um, it is more complicated and, you know, the interactions uh, become much more important. Um, this is yeah, a fairly simple, straightforward one, though. Okay. So what about this? I mean, you don't have the micro data for businesses. You don't have the 
You don't have the data that I could do for individuals from the IRS for businesses, but for businesses, you do have for public companies, a whole set of financial statements for the last 50 years. Uh, it's true that you don't have, you don't know anything about their R and D, you know, R and D expense for financial accounting purposes, which is different than R and E for tax purposes. But highly correlated, I would imagine. But correlated, you don't have private companies, but like the dollars are all in like 10 public companies, basically, is my understanding. Um, so why not use financial statement data? Or do you use some financial statement data? So we do use the financial statement data. Um, that is sort of, you know, I think we are, we are, this is this, this model, especially on the corporate side is a constant work in progress. So whatever I tell you now is, you know, probably hopefully will be completely out of date in a year. Um, but yeah, we, we do use, uh, you know, data from CompuStat uh, primarily, but also other information from financial statements. Um, you know, there's some really good stuff for us on the effective uh, tax rate reconciliation footnotes, for instance. Um, but yeah, so, so we do use that and, you know, that sort of, uh, like you say, those corporations, uh, they account for the vast majority of the corporate income tax code or, you know, corporate income tax revenues. So that does, you know, get you a lot of the way there. It is not completely simple because of these conceptual differences. We do have to model for each of these corporations, you know, what is the tax concepts, uh, that correspond to the financial concepts. Mm -hmm. um, but no, yes, that is that is you know, central to our corporate tax model. And then we do have to try and you know, come up with something uh, even more complicated for the rest of the corporate tax bank population. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, uh, so we've got two things that are going to cost money. We're going to give more money to lower income people receiving the child tax credit. We're going to give more money to giant multinational corporations that uh, do R&D. That, by the way, Jeff, that's how we were able to get the Republicans and the Democrats to work together. The Democrats want to give it to the poor individuals and the Republicans want to give it to the rich companies. You know, what's, what's actually interesting about that is like the child tax credit has historically been expanded the most under Republicans, right? The TCGA doubled it. The, like it, When you look at the biggest times it's increased, it's been the Republicans that have done it for as much as the Democrats want to talk about. But we'll, we'll, leave, that, we'll leave that there just for people to ponder. We should get Wyden on the podcast and let him talk about it. That would be amazing. And Smith. Wyden on here to tell him, tell us why the Republicans are out child tax crediting him. Um, okay, so the ERC. So we're going we're gonna to pay for all this by getting rid of these ERC fraudsters. So tell us about how you know how much that's going to. So, yeah, so this one is uh, a bit different here. Um, we do not have good micro data. We do not really have any data actually on this. Um, and so, you know, this one, uh, you know, you'll note if you, if you look at the, the report we posted on this, um, we put up, you know, a big long, I think actually it's an appendix uh, sort of running through, not not long, but you know, a short description of how we did this. And you can see where this is quite back of the envelope. Um, you know, this is something where, you know, potentially like we would just have to throw up our hands because we don't have enough information. Um, that does happen sometimes when we're, you know, for us as private budget scorers, you know, there are just certain things that are beyond the scope of what we can do without confidential information in the government. Um, but in this case, you know, we decided to sort of scrape together everything that was in the, the public record um, and, you know, do some sort of game out. Okay, if, you know, if they think they're going to raise this much money, they're gonna, they think they're going to be able to pay for all of these provisions using this ERC campaign cancellation, um, you know, what would it take to get to enough revenue uh, in order to offset these, uh, you know, the, the 
child tax credit business and other provisions in the bill. Um, so here, you know, we're sort of just looking at public information, uh, how many claims have been filed, how quickly are they coming in, how much has been paid out, uh, and then you know, trying to go from there into figuring out, you know, how likely, given what we have seen in the historical data, uh, how many, you know, what is the rate at which IRS is actually paying out these claims versus challenging them, um, uh, you know, trying to trying to forecast how many claims would come in uh, in the remaining period under current law if, um, if you know, if, the, if this proposal does not pass, because people can continue, as, as crazy as it is, uh, under current law, people can continue filing claims until 2025 for a credit that relates to what happened to your business in 2021. Um, but, you know, you, you can continue to file amended returns and try and get that benefit. Um, but yeah, so here it's sort of just trying to, you know, think through the different pieces that we know about, uh, you know, make some educated guesses, educated estimates at, at what the relevant parameters are. And then, you know, we were just like, well, let's just explain what we did, explain our thinking on this and, um, you know, let, let people see what they think of the assumptions under this. I, I saw, I saw, um, I, can't, I think it was maybe Mitt Romney, Senator Romney complaining about this uh proposed act because the the revenue raiser was sort of in, i think in his mind kind of bogus a little bit and and maybe part of that is it's hard to estimate what the benefit's going to be maybe not just for you but maybe also for the government number one number two if the benefits are being paid out fraudulently is it really raising revenue to shut down fraud? Like, I think that's sort of one of the weird things about this. Like, we're just going to stop paying fraud, but we should stop that anyway. Like, why do we have to like, why does that count as raising revenue? It's just something we should do anyway. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think it is very interesting to think about uh, how you account for the revenue raiser on something like this when it's pretty clear that the costs are going to be incurred. You know, it's, it, is an, it is a very unusual uh, situation here where we have this thing that was created and then sort of spiraled out of control into something, you know, an order of magnitude more expensive than was originally imagined. Um, but those are real cash flows, you know, going out of the government. Whether or not this these those claims are paid out, you know, that matters for the debt, that matters for the deficit. So, you know, I understand, you know, definitely, uh, it, it's not like a feel good pay for really. It's it's fixing a mess that Congress made. Um, but Congress made a quite expensive mess, and fixing it will reduce the the or you know will yeah reduce the budget deficit relative to, to current law. So, you know, whether you, you accept it as a good pay for, um, it is definitely a cash flow pay for. Yeah. So I kind of want to, we're, we're running out of time here, but I do want to wrap up by talking about, I mean, you're not the only people who've scored this. So how do your, I believe that's the case. How do your uh, calculations compare to, or not your calculations, but how do your, estimates compared to the other folks that have provided a revenue score for this these pieces sure so so you know the the official scorekeepers is the uh, joint committee on taxation and the congressional budget office um, and you know they put out the estimates that that when scores are relevant to law it is it is their scores that matter for the rules not ours we're just you know saying what we think um, but usually you know the models that that we are using, especially on the individual income tax side, are fairly similar. Um, a lot of these, in this specific case of this legislation, a lot of these changes, uh, the CTC changes, uh, like 
like we were talking about with the business investment changes, they are somewhat deterministic in terms of, you know, there's not a ton of variation or uncertainty in what the effects are going to be. There is some, obviously. Um, but so for this case, you know, as it turns out, uh, our estimates are quite similar to JCT's. Um, that is often the case, uh, although sometimes, you know, when things are more uncertain or involve more assumptions, we differ significantly. Um, but here, you know, it's like, I think we had the child tax credit changes at 30 billion, JCT had about 34 billion. Uh, the total of the business provisions, I think we have a little bit higher um, at around 40 billion versus their 33 billion. Um, but you know, these are um, at, at the scale we, we work at in the federal budget, these are small changes, small differences. So when you say like the, the JCT people, how many of your, what we've called here, your buddies, your scoring buddies, how, uh, how many of them have actually been at the JCT? Like how much overlap isn't there in these two groups? There's not many, many scores on the world. Are you? So we do not, we do not have any former JCT staff. Uh, we have a number of former CBO people. I, I myself included, I, I worked, uh, not for very long, but I, I worked at CBO. Um, and we have a, a bunch of people from there, but yeah, nobody actually from, JCT, um, you know, the, the, uh, my former colleague, Rich Prisanzano, who you had on uh, tax chats a while back, he was formerly at the treasury department, also doing very similar stuff, uh, scoring tax proposals there. They have their own group that does that. Um, so not they, much. Order. So how, I mean, how correlated are the, are your methodologies? Do you like talk with them? Do you, cause they don't, they don't reveal exactly what they do. Whereas you guys are much more open about how you get to your answer. How, are we getting two uncorrelated estimates of the same thing, or are you kind of just doing the same thing? Again, that doesn't, that's why the answers are so similar. So, you know, that, so definitely there has been huge improvement over the last few years for both um, CBO and JCT in terms of how much information they're providing about what they do. Um, so, you know, that, that's been a very valuable for us in just trying to understand uh, why we might be different. Um, and there is a lot of correlation in methods uh, and approaches to how you actually do this, they have better data. You know, we are relying on an anonymized, somewhat restricted sample of public information. Um, they have everything you know you could want. They have all kinds of different tax forms linked up. So you know, in general, um, you know they are using better data, um, but they are also somewhat more constrained in what in how they have to approach things. Uh, you know, they they are subject to a bunch of rules and budget scoring guidelines. Uh, that we don't necessarily follow um, if they seem ridiculous, which, which sometimes they do. And so I think this gets back to your, your question, and it's a bit of a philosophical one for an organization in our position, or I guess a, 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 an identity question of who we are, what we're doing here, um, because there is often a some tension between here is what here is our best estimate of the revenue effects of this change, that might be a little different from here is our best estimate of how JCT will score the revenue effects of this policy change. And policymakers, you know, people who come to us to, to ask us to analyze proposals, um, they might actually be more interested in what JCT is going to say uh, than, than, you know, what we actually think the most likely outcome is. Um, and so, you know, we do try and distinguish those things. You know, if we think that there's some reason that we would be different from, you know, we would differ from JCT as uh, you know, some you know, prior conceptual difference. Um, you know, we try and explain that. But ultimately, you know, a lot of these things are, are 
fairly deterministic once you have the data. Economic assumptions matter a lot, um, but usually that doesn't really show up until the long term. Um, so, you know, we definitely are highly correlated. Uh, we try, you know, I, I generally don't like to look at JCT's numbers until I have we have done our own. Um, but, you know, the, in a lot of cases, we definitely are taking information from previous JCT estimates and things. Um, and, you know, we, we have to sort of benchmark against something. Well, it's very interesting to learn and learn more about this process, which, as we know, is... Um, like so important to the types of legislation that get passed and and really the structure of our entire tax code. So thank you so much, Alex, for sharing your insights and for um, talking us through the Smith-Wyden proposal. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, great to talk to you guys. Well, I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University and joined, as always, by Jeff Hoops at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our guest today has been Alex Arnon, who is Director of Business Tax and Economic Analysis at the Penn Wharton Budget Model. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.